Let's pray together. Our sweet and our holy God, we thank you for a chance to sing, to pray, to give, and to greet. Lord, we thank you that you know us through and through and that you love us. Lord, we thank you that you have a design for our lives. We confess, Lord, that we have lived below that design, that in word and deed and in lazy omission we have sinned against you. Forgive us, Lord, and restore us to the joy of our salvation and to usefulness in this your good world. God, we thank you for your word that guides our steps and directs our paths. We open it today as a family of faith, as an act of faith. And as we do, Lord, we ask you to speak to us. We ask you to speak that our souls may hear. God, we open ourselves to you today and to the moving of your spirit in our lives. Forgive us, Lord, for those moments where in self-sufficiency and sin we have grieved and quenched your precious spirit. Lord, call us to something new today, to something good, to something that will bring glory and honor to your name. This is our prayer in the strong name of Jesus, and we pray together saying, amen. Amen. Friends, it's good to see you. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 22. Uh, We've been there a couple of weeks now, so you should have oriented yourself to this section of Scripture. But if not, uh, it's on page 441 in my Bible, if that gives you something to start with. We have been talking about this big project, and we are in the very midst of a big project, one of steel and stone and wood. Uh, You're sitting in it. People are are very confused about where to sit, and and I'm just apologizing. I'm saying, I'm so sorry. Your pew is in Dallas, and uh, and people are making the best of it, and I appreciate you for doing that, Uh, but we're in the midst of a project right here in this church. You you came in today, and you saw uh, generations of projects that have gone before. You saw some tile, and you saw some concrete, and you saw some wood as we peel that, that layer of carpet away. That carpet served Jesus faithfully, friends, and we owe it some respect, and we have laid it to rest this past week. But we're in the midst of a, of a project. There's some dust on our shoes, and we're having to deal with, with all of that. We're in the midst of a project. But we're also, we're in the midst of a, of a larger project of a more personal note, God is, is building all of our lives. The, the building of Solomon's temple in the Old Testament was such a significant moment for the lives of God's people that it became a living sermon illustration in the New Testament. It, it became a sort of a pulsing metaphor uh, of life with God. Uh, and Paul would write about it, and, and he would talk about how God, God had made us, individual followers of Jesus, the temple of the Spirit. Paul would say collectively uh, that we uh, are the dwelling place of the Holy God, that we are the temple of the Spirit, and that we should take heed how, how we build. So God is at work. And just as I learned in Mission Friends to sing, He's still working on me, He is still working on us. And thank God He is. And that matters. 
And for the past few weeks and, and, and for a week or two more, uh, we're looking at the principles uh, of God's big project from First Chronicles and trying to apply those principles in our lives today. Today we come to chapter 22. You might remember last week David said, this is it. This is the place. This is the spot of land uh, where we are to build. And all of the implications uh, of that selection and, and the reason why that selection was made. And today we come uh, to the ramp up of the project. I'm looking at builders out here in the audience. And, and I know that there's a ramp up to a project. And we're coming to that phase in the building of this temple uh, of, of passionate preparation. That this ramp up uh, where the things are being brought together and the people are being brought together. And we have so much to put in our life from this text today. We start reading uh, in chapter 22, uh, verse 2. So David commanded and, and brought together all of the aliens who were in the land of Israel. And he appointed masons to cut hewn stones to build the house of God. And David prepared iron in abundance for the nails of the doors, the gates, and for the joints, and the bronze in abundance beyond measure, and cedar trees in abundance. For the Sidonians and those from Tyre brought much cedar wood for David. Now David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced. He's a young guy. He hadn't, he hadn't done much. How about that for building confidence up in your new guy, you know? He's young. He's, he's inexperienced. And, and the house to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent, famous, and glorious throughout all the countries. I will now make preparation for it. So David made abundant preparations before his death. The next scene, the next paragraph, David calls Solomon, and he, he calls him to a life of courage and faithfulness and industry. Uh, and then down around verse 15, uh, he says this to him, Moreover, there are workmen with you in abundance, woodsmen, stonecutters, all types of skillful men of every kind of work, of gold, of silver, bronze, and iron, there is no limit. Arise. Arise and begin working, and the Lord be with you. David also commanded all the leaders of Israel to help Solomon, his son, saying, Is not the Lord your God with you? And he has he not given you rest on every side? For he has given the inhabitants of the land into my hand, and the land is subdued before the Lord and before his people. Now set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God. Therefore, arise and build the sanctuary, the Lord God, uh, and bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the holy articles of God into the house that is to be built for the name of the Lord. Now, in the next several chapters, we run into those, those passages of Scripture, those places in the Bible that we cheer for when we're in those through-the-Bible-in-a-year reading plans. Have you ever uh, adopted a through-the-Bible-in-a-year plan, and you just get to the list, and you're able to go really fast and make up some, some pace? 
Well, we're getting into some of those, those quick page turning sections. There are no coffee cup verses in this section of Scripture. No cross-stitch verses or bumper sticker verses. Uh, like in, in chapter 23, we just have lists of the divisions of the Levites, person after person, uh, to give leadership. And then in chapter 24, the division of the priest. And then other Levites, beginning in verse 20. Chapter 25, we have all the musicians listed. And musicians should definitely be listed. You keep going. You have the gatekeepers in 26, the people to take care of things and make things secure and, and to keep it orderly. Then you come to the money guys, the bean counters. That's around verse 20. You got the people to take care of the funds and the treasury and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. Then you got the army people uh, in chapter 27, the military divisions. Then you have various and sundry other leaders, other state officials toward the end of chapter 27. You just have list after list of categories and people. It sounds a lot like the work of a committee on committees. Scott Jones and I were eating tacos the other day, and we were going over lists from the Committee on Committees. And when we got through with our tacos, uh, this very nice man came over to us and said, y'all want a nominating committee, aren't you? And we said, no, sir, but you didn't miss it by much. He says, I'm a Methodist pastor, and I could spot a nominating committee a mile away. And so you have this sheet of all these different workers, all these different people, and all the things they did and the ways that they were to go about doing it. When you get to chapter 28, you have the instruction for the building of the temple. And then you come down to the end in about verse 18, uh, and David says to Solomon again, he said to his son, Be strong and of good courage and do it. Do not fear nor be dismayed, for the Lord God, my God, will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you until you have finished all the work for the service of the house of the Lord. Here are the divisions of the priests and the Levites and all the service of the house of God. And every willing craftsman, he will be with you for all manner of workmanship for every kind of service, also the leaders and all the people will be completely at your command. He called him to get to work. And friends, I think today as we think about the big project of God working on our life, we need to call, be called again to get to work. To actively participate with God in our growth as his people, both individually and collectively to this sacred and holy work, this sacred and holy life, this beautiful and big project. There's so much in here we could spend the rest of the day, but we won't do that because you would fire me. So what we'll do is we'll pick up a couple of principles. And again, they're alliterated and brought to you by the letter P. The first of which is, is this principle of, of preparation. If you have your number two lead, let's just start there. This principle of, of preparation. David began, he, he, he said, look, God told me this isn't my job. That I'm a man of war. And that this is a project of peace. And he said, Solomon is the one that God has selected 
for this duty to be the chief in the building of this place of worship to God. He said, but here's the deal. He ain't got a clue what he's doing. He's young. He's inexperienced. And the work, the work that is going to give glory to God is going to be a work of, of amazing magnitude. The splendor will reflect the splendor of our covenant-making God. It's going to take iron, and it's going to take trees, and it's going to take all kind of people doing all kind of stuff. The work is big. And Solomon, he's small. Friends, I think this is where we ought to begin with a humble recognition that what God has called us to is enormous. He's called us to be part of making his name and fame known around the world. He's called us to join him in this beautiful, gritty work of repairing that which has been broken by our own selfishness and grasping and sin. He's called us to something big. And we're little. When David recognized this challenge, he said, I've got one fight left in me before I die. And his last challenge was to make abundant provision for the building of the temple. And we need to be people of abundant preparation. He wanted to make it big. Friends, we just can't shuffle in and fumble through. We must prepare. And we must do. I like that. It even kind of rhymes if you say it fast. We have to be people that are willing to prepare. Abraham Lincoln, he said, if you gave me six hours to cut down a tree, I would spend the first four sharpening my axe. Abe Lincoln was a wise man. Many of you passed through my old hometown, Meridian, Mississippi, on your way to pretty places. Uh, some of you get to the mountains or you're going to something in Atlanta. Uh, from time to time, I get a text message at odd times. Matt, where should I eat in Meridian? I'm looking in the faces of people who have sent me that kind of text message. And I, I've sent a number of you to Wideman's Restaurant, downtown Meridian. It's a great old town area. Uh, if, if you come out of Wideman's and you look down the street, you'll, you'll see the three-foot building. The three-foot building is the one skyscraper. We're so proud we use that language. We have one skyscraper in Meridian. And that one skyscraper was the three-foot building, not unlike the Alaco, Waco's one skyscraper. Mid, mid-sized industrial towns, you know, in the south and the west. We were proud of our one big building. And our one big building was the three-foot building. And my great-grandfather, he started his business uh, hanging doors in the three-foot building. He would get there early in the morning, early before anyone else, and he would sharpen his tools, and he would prepare each day for work. They, they contracted uh, to pay him by door, but when the work started, he was so fast. They came and tried to put him uh, on a salary, and he said, no, I have a contract per door. I'm going to stick with that. And he made enough to start his little, his little building company. 
That story has been told in each generation in my family to emphasize the importance of abundant preparation. Acknowledging that we can't just shuffle in and fumble through, but we've got to prepare and we've got to do to sharpen our axe. And David, looking at this big project before him, and his son, young and inexperienced, he said, my life, and it may be short, but my life ambition is to abundantly prepare for the building of this temple. And friends, as we build our lives, we have to tuck this in our heart, apply it regularly, and live it out over and over and over and over and over again. So there's the principle of preparation. There's the principle of personnel. How many people are, are listed? How many people are mentioned in this great project? How many categories? We have language like this. All types of skillful men. Every kind of work. We have examples like wood, metal, stone, treasure. We have priests and Levites and seers and prophets and doorkeepers and masons. All manner of workmanship. Every kind of service. Uh, you, you hear this language? Every all? It's like every nook and cranny, every, every skill set was valuable and needed. Uh, and it, it was all over the place. It was deep. It was wide. It was high. And people were brought together and recruited and equipped. Uh, and they said, if we're going to do this, we're going to have to do this. All of us. Everyone have got to be involved. This principle of personnel became a throbbing reality. This call to everyone recognizing that there is something present in our life that was placed there by God that is valuable. Valuable for this big project that is sitting out there in front of us. Friends, we live in a time where people think about their faith as if we were some type of consumers. As if this church is a Coca-Cola church and that church is a Pepsi church. Let's just go ahead and name it. We're a Dr. Pepper church. We go around tasting it out. And there are very real seasons where God would have us in different places and serving in different ways. But we can never come to the place where we primarily view ourselves as consumers and producers of religious goods and services. You are part of something that is alive. You are part of the community of faith, the body of Christ. And you're part of the, the building. You're part of the dwelling place of God. Just as there's wood in these walls and metal in these walls, just as there's wires that take electricity uh, around this building, just as there's bulbs that give illumination to that power, you have a role to play. You have a role to play to make a place for others to experience the aliveness and the grace of God. This principle of personnel, oh, it's so rich. And it's so good, and it's so real.
I was reminded of this in, in, a, in a pretty powerful way recently. Uh, not long ago, I was invited to give the invocation for the ribbon cutting at a Whataburger restaurant. The brand new Whataburger on I-35. Do I get an amen for Whataburger? I mean, everybody loves the Whataburger. Uh, I learned about Whataburger. We had one in Jackson, Mississippi, but nobody went there. They just thought it was sort of a, a deformed McDonald's. They didn't know what it was. But when you come over the border at Wascom, you realize that Whataburger loves Texas, and Texas loves Whataburger. It's sort of a spiritual thing. And so when Whataburger calls a Texas pastor, the Texas pastor doesn't have to pause and seek wise counsel or even pray about it. You just say yes to Whataburger, right? And so I told the good people at Whataburger, yes, I'll come and pray for your burgers. And they said, oh, don't pray for your burgers. We're in the people business. I thought, okay, you're giving me some cover here. That's good. So I went down to the ribbon cutting at the Whataburger. Family-owned deal. I mean, and it's run like a family. Lynn Dobson was there. Her daddy was the founder of Whataburger, and she gave a very moving speech. And, and, and then they brought out people, the general manager and the regional this and the, and the corporate that, and, uh, and the guys who were making the fries and flipping the burgers. And, and, and Lynn got to talking and, and reading from her daddy's diary. It looked like a sacred book to me. Uh, as she was reading from that book, people began to weep. And I caught myself, just caught up in the spirit. And I looked around, and they were weeping, and, and, and a gentle tear came down my own eye as they were talking about what a burger. And she talked about how my daddy had a vision. He said, up to that point, buns were four inches in diameter, and he had a vision, a dream of a five-inch bun. <laughs> because Texans like things bigger. And so my daddy went to me. It was all about the bun at first, and my daddy made a five-inch bun, and he wanted to, to make that burger in that five-inch bun so good that when they took their first bite, they said, what? What a burger. And there were shouts of hallelujah in the back of the room, and <laughs> it was great. I wanted to quit and go make what a burger's. It was the most powerful experience I'd experienced in a while. It was like the sawdust trail, tent revival. I mean, I felt like people would come out of their walkers at any time. It was beautiful. What a burger. The thing that struck me was the absolute sincerity of the people who were involved in that. They really did believe that they were about people and not burgers, and, and they did like each other. And they weren't faking those tears. They really did mean it. And I thought, you know, maybe your own tears weren't all that fake either. You were just moved by something beautiful in the human experience, in the human story. And I felt if I laughed about this, I'd be laughing like you laugh about the people at the grave of Elvis in Memphis. You just don't do that. You may not get it as an outsider, but it's real to those people. You just don't do that. You, you tread gently there. Prayed my prayer. They cut that ribbon. They gave me spicy ketchup and three free burgers I could redeem at any time. This was on a Thursday. I redeemed them on a Friday. Indeed, the bun is five inches. And when you take that first bite, you do say, what a burger. And I thought about that a lot after it happened. And I thought, hey, here's a group of people created in the image of God, doing something together, and it works. 
It works. And I thought, you know, they have a vision to give Texans five inches of tasty burger. That's what gathers them together. I said, man, oh man. Wouldn't that be an indictment if the Whataburger people were able to muster personnel in a way that we couldn't when we have been given by God, by God, the vision of the great commandment and the great commission to embody the love of Jesus, to, to, to speak the words of Jesus, to share the life of God that we proclaim has changed our lives. If they can pull it together for five inches of hamburger, then we regularly ought to pause before that holy commission and that holy commandment and say, as Jesus prayed, Lord, make us one for your glory. And recognize in our growth and in our maturity that there comes a time where we go from being from someone sitting on a pew, healing up from the brokenness of life, to being one who engages the work of God in the world. Recognizing that what God has put in your life is precious and real and good. Where you offer it back up to God. Where you offer it back up to God and say, God, here I am. Have me, use me. I want to share in the joy of building with you. All the metaphors you need to have in your mind have this. You're part of the squad. You're part of the team. You're part of the personnel that makes up the force that is doing the work of God in the world. There's preparation. There's personnel. Here's a third one if you're writing them down. It's a matter of performance. He said, arise and build. I have a friend, he's about the age of my dad. When he hangs up the phone with me, he says, get after it, boy. Get after it. I love it. It's kind of like, like David is saying to him, get after it. Guys, get after it. God has, has given you gifts and abilities and, and stuff, and, and, and God's given you a mind, and God's given you a goal and a job. He said to do it. Now, now, don't sit around pondering this any longer. Get up and do it. Arise. My first year as a pastor, I called my builder father, and I was complaining about some little business that was going on in the church. I said, Dad, I just don't get it. I didn't think it was going to be this way. I thought, you know, it was going to be like, well, church, and it's more like, well, church. And Dad said, son... That's why they call it work. We will never divorce ourselves from blood, sweat, and tears. The work of God in this world is a work of blood and sweat and tears. And we have to be people who regularly hear the Spirit of Jesus say, Get up and work. The same one that says, arise, take your mat and walk. The one that calls us to life. The one that says into our, into our death, come forth and live. Also says, get up 
and get to work. We sit at the feet of Jesus and there are times we need to go in the kitchen and make preparation for those sweaty disciples. We are Mary. We are Martha in one body. Jesus said, come to me. Jesus said, go into all. You are the personnel. And God has called you to perform. And there will be a performance evaluation. In the New Testament, there's this beautiful image in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where we're called to build. Paul said, uh, beginning in verse 9, We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will make it clear. But it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work and what sort it is. If anyone's work which is built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through God has called us to build and to build according to his heart and his passion and his plans. And God gets to say whether that, that work, it was according to his heart or was it according to our own ambition and swagger? Did we build with things that were precious and eternal and good or, or did we just throw some stuff up in a shabby kind of fashion uh, and, and the one that comes uh, to inspect will come to inspect and test and reward. We hate this idea of reward. And it's all through the New Testament. And we hate it. We hate it because we're prideful people. There's a little, little phrase in, in Scott McKnight's book, The Heaven Promise, where he has a chapter on reward. And he, he, he quotes Peter Kreeft. And, and, he, and he talks about folks just like us. He says, we modern egalitarians are tempted to the primal sin of pride in the opposite way from the ancients. The old aristocratic form of pride was desire to be better than others. The due democratic form is to desire not to have anyone better than yourself. We grew up fighting for our chicken nuggets. We don't want anybody to have three if we get two. And so we, we reject this idea of God smiling and evaluating and blessing what we've done. Because we think it's about each other. And we're either bigger and stronger than another or we're underneath another. What if it's not about one another at all? What if this idea of God's evaluation and reward has everything to do with Him? And Him being our portion. And us finding our pleasure evermore in Him. What if it's not about one another at all? What if it's about God? And he's called us to build in a way that focuses our gaze strictly and completely on him, recognizing that he is our lot. He is our portion. He is the one who, who gives us and who calls us to give back. What if it's all about God? 
And this idea of reward in the New Testament is a call to live our life with a passionate pursuit for the joy and the smile and the pleasure of God. For God to look at our life and say, yes, that makes me so happy because I made you for this and you found your life and your joy in doing it this way. And we can live like that in increasing dimension, and we can find our life alive with his aliveness, and that is reward indeed. But we settle for cheap trinkets, plastic baubles, and glass, and all of that burns up. All of it. He's the one, he's the one who judges performance And thank God he is the one. Thank God. Because it shapes and it forms everything. And here's the last one. If you're still writing stuff down, and this won't take long. But this is the most important one. There is this promise of presence. Son, God will be with you. And then he personalizes it. God, my God, will be with you. He calls you to work. He calls us to work. But in the strength he provides. He calls us to life. But he's the author and the pioneer of life. He calls us to a job bigger than ourselves. And tells us he'll fill us with himself. And that is sufficient. That is enough. B.H. Carroll, I used to say, used to stand at this pulpit. This one was donated in 1990. He never even saw this one. B.H. Carroll's pulpit's in Dallas. He probably thought that was funny. But he used to stand in a place like this people that wore the same name he would say stuff a lot of it I thought well okay but so much of it so much of it can snatch us toward the future straight out of our past an anchor we can throw out in front of us to pull us to God's good tomorrow in a collection of sermons he published under the title saved to serve He looked in the eyeballs of the First Baptist family and he said, If you don't believe that all your strength is in the Holy Ghost, don't even start. We start a lot of things unconvinced that God is with us. And in almost every single one of them, we live to regret it. He has made us the promise of his presence. We grieve him and we quench his touch in our life when we say, I got this, I got it. But when we humble ourselves, when we humble ourselves, he lifts us up. So today, if you rise to work, Arise to work because he's lifted you up following going to your knees and asking for his strength. In that motion, 
you find life. Thank God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for calling us to be part of your great project. We thank you that you are still at work in our lives, and we are so grateful for this. We thank you for your relentless tenderness and stubborn, hard-headed love for us. And Lord, as you build your temple, uh, as you build our lives, we pray that we, we offer ourselves to you as clay in the hands of a potter. Well, we don't know all that you're doing, but we know that you're at work, and we give you thanks. Help us, Lord, collectively to humble ourselves today, knowing your strength will follow. Lord, as we respond to your call, help us to do it for your glory and for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, I invite you to stand. We're going to sing. If God has placed something on your heart to make public today, we invite you to do that uh, for your glory, his glory, and for your good. Let's, Let's sing together.